0: sports cage on 91.3 wvud with teddy gelman
1: i feel like i need to stand up in studio here and kind of experiment with how that would work brandon
2: Halvek their whole defensive line has been arrested once or twice over the past two years
0: ahmed quadri
1: the yankees are fun to watch end quote that's it that's all i ever said
0: and jake lampert
1: eat more chicken there you go i'll throw a slogan in there if anyone here is uh working for Chick fil i'm to throw me some sandwiches
0: it's Sports Talk Radio on 91.3 WBUD. Welcome to the cage.
1: First off, Gronkowski, I don't think there's any doubt at this point he'll play. He hasn't been officially cleared, but all signs point that he'll have to, he, he will be playing. Yep. So, good news for Patriots fans. I don't uh, like I said, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But besides that, among those players, we know there was a lot Eagles had a lot of injuries not throughout the playoffs, but before the playoffs, it looks like most teams, for the most part, are, are going to be pretty healthy with who they've had over the last couple seasons over the last couple of weeks sure. coming into this game. Yeah, so now in this game, what now that you've had a week for pondering, etc, what stands out at this point in time, with a few days to go as the biggest storyline? The most critical factor, whether it's a player or the most critical thing. I'm going to go
2: with the matchup. I'm going to go go with the Eagles. This was what I pigeonholed for the Vikings-Eagles game, too. I'm going to go with the Eagles' defensive front versus the Patriots' offensive line. And the biggest question is, can the Eagles put pressure on Tom Brady? He's one of the best quarterbacks, not only today, but in the entire NFL history, in getting the ball out of his hands he's he's very good at that. They can spread out defenses, use those quick receiving backs, James White, Deion Lewis, along with those quick slot receivers. In the past, it's been Wes Welker, Julian Edelman. Now it'll be Danny Amendola and Chris Hogan. If the Eagles defensive front, which is one of the best in football, if they can get consistent pressure on Tom Brady, it it's not impossible for the Patriots to win. In fact, They've, they've done it before. They've gotten the ball out of Brady's hands quick. But I think that's what you have to force them to do. You can't give him all time. And if they have success getting to him before he can get it out, the Patriots offensive line is not great. If it breaks down, that's really the one time that you see Tom Brady struggle. He's not a mobile quarterback. He can't get outside the pocket and extend plays. His biggest way to counter a rushing pass rush from a defense is getting the ball out of his hands. If the Eagles can get there first, That's the biggest matchup for them and for limiting the Patriots' offense because on the outside, they don't match up particularly well with the Patriots' weapons, and obviously Tom Brady will do his homework and he'll know uh, where to go with the football in the secondary. But it's Fletcher Cox, it's Brandon Graham, it's Chris Long that could make a difference, Eagles' defense versus the Patriots' offense.
1: I'm just looking at the Eagles' schedule right here, and correct me if you disagree, or or let me know if you disagree, but I would argue that the quarterback that they faced this season that – got the ball out of their hand as fast, not as fast, but close, closest to Tom Brady and the best offense they will play besides the Patriots, is probably the Rams. Probably, based on the Eagles' schedule, Maybe. which didn't have a ton of great offensive teams, not discounting what they did at and all. The
2: biggest difference between the Patriots and the Rams, though, is that the Rams in that game established a running attack, mm-hmm. and the Patriots aren't going to be a you know a gap running team right behind the center, running it up the middle. They're not going to run it down your throats. And they're not going to run it against the Eagles front four. The Eagles are the best rush defense in the NFL. And the Patriots running attack, it has those those quick speedy guys that create mismatches on the outside, but they're not between the tackles guys. They're four you know, they're not those those grind them out four or five yard carry type of running backs. So that's where the Rams can differ. I I saw an interesting point made earlier this week that I'll reiterate here, too, is that a lot of times NFL offenses view a four- or five-yard pass completion as not a great result because when you're throwing the football, you look at these great prolific offenses, and they're picking up big chunks, 15, 20, 25 yards down the field. But the Patriots, I think, realize that that four- or five-yard pass completion does the same as a four- or five-yard run, which on a first-and-ten, most NFL offenses will be very happy with, and they can kind of consider it keeping up with the down or staying on schedule. So that's where I think the Patriots, if they throw the ball 50 times in this game because they don't have that running attack, I think they'll be fine with it, picking up those four or five at a time. I just thought that was an interesting thing to keep in mind, that even though they don't have that traditional ground attack that a team like the Rams or the Chiefs had against the Eagles— and they're doing, they're going to find ways to challenge them uh, but the front four I think is a critical factor for Philly.
1: And let's be honest over the last couple of seasons when the Patriots have made runs they did have Legarett Blunt who's now in Philadelphia but they've never been able to rush for 100 plus yards in the playoffs. They don't do that. They don't do that. Yeah. I would argue their running game is weaker this year. It's weaker. It's weaker. And
2: we've seen this offense for the Patriots go through a lot of stages where With a LeGarrette Blunt, they still might be a better passing team, but they're passing out of two tight end formations. They're passing out of big, heavy formations. They're not passing out of four receiver personnel, spread the field, motion the running back out, and have empty sets. They don't always do that. They're back to that this year in the playoffs. They did a lot of it against the Titans. But we've also seen them think about Gronk and Aaron Hernandez. Think about Gronk and Martellus Bennett last year. We've seen them a lot of times be effective in play action off that power running game, throwing in two tight end sets with limited small personnel. Now they're going to be a lot smaller against the Eagles and challenge them in space. But that's also the reason why this team is here every year, because with their personnel, they find ways to evolve and make the most of it.
1: Let's switch gears real quick before we hop to break and talk about the Eagles offense Based on what Nick Foles in that offense did against Minnesota in the NFC Championship, what kind of expectations do you have for him in this game?
2: They're high. He's not going to have 370 passing yards again the way he did against Minnesota. But I think they're going to have to be similarly aggressive the way they were in that first half against the Vikings. They're going to have to have new looks drawn up that they haven't shown all season long because the Patriots are going to be as prepared as any team with two weeks and they're going to need to take chances down the field. And if he converts them, it'll keep the Eagles in the game and give them a chance to win. But if he doesn't, it will might be tough sledding for them to pick up four or five-yard chunks. But my expectation is for Nick Foles to take those chances and be aggressive the way that he was against Minnesota. And that's a changed expectation from where this team sat a couple of weeks ago coming off that Atlanta game where you said, just control the ball and let the defense do the job.
0: You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast.
1: Here we go. Who has the edge? That's the game. CBS Sports Network plays this game for their uh, that other pregame show. Who okay. has who has the edge, and they say it like that. Who has the edge? So, <laughs> we're going to go through each of the major categories and who's got the edge. We'll start with probably the least interesting but but still a very important one, special teams.
2: Special teams. Hmm. I'm going to go with I'll go with the Eagles. With the advantage being the place kicker Jake Elliott's range. I think Steven Guskowski is more consistent, but this will be a close game, and if the Eagles need a 55-yard field goal in a dome to win, there's not a better kicker in the league right now to put out there than Jake Elliott. The guy's been muddy all season, including his 61-yard field goal to win the game against New York in Week 3, and he's been almost perfect from 50-plus this year. The... Patriots are a great coverage team. They perennially have one of the best special teams units, headlined by Matthew Slater, who's almost always a pro bowler as a special teamer. The Eagles are missing Darren Sproles, who was their punt returner at the beginning of the season. Kenyon Barner has been good, although he did fumble a punt in the Atlanta game that could have been very costly. So so that's you know a very close matchup. I think the kicking game, for me, throws it a hair in the Eagles' direction. Obviously, in any of these big games, if there is a big play generated by one of the special teams units, it will have a big impact, and it's often overlooked.
1: I'll, I'll think it's going to be really close. I'll go Patriots because of the postseason experience by Gustowski and what that could. Not just that, but also you mentioned Matthew Slater, Sproles being out. Not that they've been okay. The Eagles have been fine in the return game, but that gives them a big yeah. advantage with that. So I'll, yeah, I'll go Gustow. I'll go the Patriots uh, based on that experience, but I think that's pretty much almost even down the middle. Okay, how about coaching? Who has the edge coaching?
2: I think you have to give it to Bill Belichick for his resume, but Doug Peterson by no means is a bad coach. He's been great in the postseason, and most analysts will agree that he's been very creative in the ways that they've reinvented the offense around Nick Foles' strengths. Going with a lot of RPO run-pass options that allow Nick Foles to slow down and kind of read the defense, and then get the ball out quick to an open receiver on an easy throw. Those have been very effective in the two playoff games. And then last game, they drew up a lot of different looks to get the ball deep. Flea flicker to Torrey Smith. Nick Foles making something happen and chucking it deep to Alshon Jeffrey on an out and up. Uh, Zach Ertz on a similar out-and-up route beating the safety Harrison Smith. The game plan the last couple of weeks for the Eagles has been very good, so I do want to give Doug Peterson some credit and the entire Eagles coaching staff a lot of credit for what they've drawn up the last couple of weeks around their limited personnel. But with that being said, Bill Belichick and the Patriots, you know, a lot of people will look back to their cheating earlier on in their tenure, and that certainly should be a small tarnish on the resume of this team stealing signs in earlier Super Bowls and the Eagles are actually convinced that they did so in 2004. Um, we don't want to get into all of that conspiracy talk at the moment right now, but you have to you know, side with the experience of Bill Belichick and the Patriots staff, who also has two soon-to-be head coaches on it as the two coordinators.
1: Has that ever happened is a great question, where well, you've had two coordinators go off in the same year to become head coaches?
2: Happened to New England, actually,
1: um, earlier just goes to Bill show Belichick's the team. kind of coaches that that they produce. Romeo
2: yeah. Cornell and Charlie Weiss, Weiss.
1: Notre Dame. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I go Patriots too for all the reasons you said. I'm not going to repeat them, but Doug Peterson's done a really nice job in the playoffs. But I'm not going to go but against Doug Peterson. Belichick should
2: here. be my. He's my pick for coach of the year.
1: Even um, o, even over Sean McVay. Yeah. Because of postseason. Yeah. I mean, Would you have given it to McVay if the Eagles lost in the first in the first game?
2: Yeah. But okay. I, I give it to Peterson for winning two playoff games with a backup quarterback. Um, but, I mean, Sean McVay, if he wins, he's deserving. I mean, mm-hmm. he took a team that was down in the dumps and completely you know, made it into one of the NFL's best offenses. He deserves a ton of credit. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and we'll see them next year, no doubt. They'll, they'll be around, probably yeah. the favorites in the West again, whatever. They're, yeah, they should be. Unless yeah. uh, unless uh, Jimmy G's got something up his sleeve. But a, <laughs> yeah, whole, a whole other conversation. Okay, defensively, who's got the edge?
2: This is another tough one. This one's really close. I'll go Eagles. I like the front four, and I mentioned it before as that's my matchup to watch. Eagles front four versus the Patriots offensive line. Can they get consistent pressure on Tom Brady? We know the Eagles will limit the running game. It's going to be on Brady's shoulders, but that's probably just the way that the Patriots want it. Another interesting part of the defense will be to watch how the linebackers cover the running backs out of the backfield. Michael Kendricks and Nigel Bradham being the two guys that'll be out on the field for most of the game for the Eagles. That's a tough assignment, but they're also very versatile, very quick linebackers that all season have been swarming to the football. Patriots defense started off slow this year, but they've gotten a lot better. It's still a very, very good unit, but this is one of the best Eagles defenses we've seen in a pretty long time. They're talented uh, from the front line to the secondary.
1: The Patriots have given up 34 points in the playoffs. The Eagles have given up 17 the Falcons are a good offense, not an awesome offense. They're better last year. The Vikings had been good, but with Keenum, they got shut down. I'm going to go Eagles here. I think that the the defense has been really good. I, I don't think they. I don't think anybody can stop Tom Brady, but they've got a shot to limit him. And isn't that the most important thing you can yeah, do? Yeah, that's your goal <laughs> in the game. That, that's what you have to try to do. You can't
2: stop him. You can only hope to contain. him. You've
1: got to try to contain him. And based on what they've done in the playoffs and. Honestly, this, that defensive unit in Philadelphia has improved throughout the season, I yeah, think. Yeah, they
2: had the one blimp against the Giants week 15, where they gave mm-hmm. up over 30, and they got beat on a bunch of double moves. Ever since then, they've been, they've been awesome. They gave up just to, under 20 to Oakland. They gave up six to Dallas with their backups, and then you mentioned the 17 points combined in the two playoff games.
1: And I'm looking, first four games of the season for the Eagles, all very close wins, pretty much. They beat the Redskins. That wasn't that close. They deserved to win that one. They won by 13. Gave up 17. Next week, they beat the Chiefs. Lost. uh, They lost the Chiefs. Lost lost, the Chiefs. Thank you. Gave up 20. Beat the Giants. Gave up 24. Beat the Chargers. Gave up 24. And that is a four-game stretch in which they pretty much gave up the largest amount of points in a four-game stretch. because
2: then they started just... Dominating for a three or four week span in the middle. Pretty much had some bad Pretty advantage. much starting with yeah.
1: the, I'd say the Panthers win was it a win in which pe- at the time when the Panthers were really good. Yeah, that was great, a turning point. When people said, oh, hold on. That up. was
2: a short week, Eagles traveling on the road to Carolina. And the Panthers, I think they had the same record, maybe a game better than the Eagles.
1: And then they beat teams that they should have beaten and won some games that were close. And here we are now. So that's what we'll go defensively. I'll give it to the Eagles too. Offensively, Patriots, Eagles, who has the edge?
2: Patriots. Um, Tom Brady is the biggest edge. Nick Foles was great last week, but Tom Brady is perhaps the greatest quarterback of all time. Rob Gronkowski is a big factor, but he's not a deciding factor. The Patriots won last year's Super Bowl without him. I think Danny Amendola, James White, those two guys are really going to be the ones with the majority of the catches on short balls, those crossing routes, routes out of the backfield, running back split out on linebackers. I don't think they'll really test the Eagles deep. I think it's going to be a lot of short stuff. But they have a lot of different options with that offense. You even throw Brandon Cooks in there, who I think's gotten a little forgotten this year after coming over from New Orleans. And then, But you know, it all boils down in the end of what Tom Brady can do.
1: I agree with all of that. You'd be crazy to say anything other than that the Patriots had the edge here, which is really only yeah. one, one of the things you could I say. Mean, if
2: you, but- if, if you want to look at all the other position groups outside quarterback, the Eagles have a better offensive line. The Patriots probably have a better receiver group, but it's close. Both teams have a lot of talent. Running backs, the Eagles probably have marginally better running backs. But you can't do it that way. it, It has to start with the quarterback. It's such a pivotal, important position. And and that department, the Patriots have the biggest advantage, not only against the Eagles, but against everybody they've played to this point.
1: And experience. Yeah. He's been there. He's done it multiple, multiple times. Now, a decisive matchup we like to describe as a matchup, or they or we, whoever likes to describe a decisive matchup, as the matchup, player versus player, unit versus unit, or scheme versus scheme, that could become pivotal in deciding the outcome of this game. What do you think for that category?
2: Before, I mentioned Eagles front four against the Patriots offensive line, and I will stand by that as being decisive. If the Eagles can't get pressure, I'll pose it this way they're going to have a tough time winning the game. If you give Tom Brady time to pick him apart in the secondary, he's going to do so, and he has the weapons to do so, especially with a healthy Gronk on the seam routes over the middle. But if they can get pressure, that's where the Eagles can maybe force some mistakes, force Brady to make quick throws and pressure, where he's good, and if they design those quick throws, they can maybe get out of it. But if they're not designed, if they're still running play action and they're getting pressure on him... They can throw that offense off of rhythm and off schedule, and they're going to have to do that to keep this game close. I think they have to have that pressure from the front four consistently on Brady, getting hits in on Brady, getting him uncomfortable, getting him off his spot. Uh, and then I'll throw out the other matchup I mentioned a moment ago, the linebackers on the running backs. All season long, James White and Deion Lewis make three or four-yard catches into 10, 15-yard gains. They're slimy. They're slippery. They're tough guys to get to the ground in open field. If Nigel Bradham and Michael Kendricks bring it, that's that's one department where the Eagles are maybe better than a lot of other defenses, but it goes unnoticed in making those open field tackles, whether it is those two linebackers, Bradham and Kendricks that I mentioned, or Mike or excuse me, Malcolm Jenkins coming down from the safety position. They'll play him up in the box a lot when they play cover three, which means they have the two corners and Rodney McLeod the free safety deep and Jenkins up as almost a third linebacker. If those guys can make open field tackles, I think that's also an important matchup for the Eagles' defense to limit the Patriots' offense. Because if they're getting the pressure there, they're going to dink and dunk to those short guys. Eagles have to come up and make the tackle.
1: I think, I think at the end of the day, that's going to be the most critical matchup. However you want to phrase it, something defensively for the Eagles versus Tom Brady, I think that's going to be the most critical matchup. But just for the sake of this conversation, yeah. I'm going to give you the matchup uh, Nick Foles versus the Patriots' secondary. And the reason I say yeah. that is because the Vikings, we know, have a very good secondary. And Nick Foles is great in the NFC Championship, and the Vikings got blown out. The Patriots also have a good secondary. They're not as good as the Vikings, of course, but they've got Malcolm Butler, Patrick Chung, Devin McCourty, Stephen Gilmore. These are names that people know, and this is a, a core that is good. I think the Eagles could have success running against the Patriots. Patriots have had some problems there. Fournette busted them up in the AFC Championship. I think the, in Eagles, the first half. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think the Eagles could run against them. The question is, can Foles throw against them? So, depending on what happens in the secondary with the Eagles receivers, to me, that's a very critical matchup. Real quick now before we go to break, one player, who's the X factor in this game?
2: Nick Foles. He's got to bring it. He can't make mistakes. He hasn't been making mistakes. But, you know, one or two turnovers is costly in a game like this because you know Tom Brady on the other side's not making those mistakes. I think the Eagles need to keep the pedal to the metal. They need to be aggressive, come out with shot plays, unique designs that they've... Been able to game plan and scheme for two weeks and put Nick Foles in a position to make some plays. He played the best game of his career by far against the Vikings. He probably won't have that same stat line, but if they can get close, that'll put him in a good position in this game. I think Nick Foles is the big X factor for the Eagles that'll make the biggest difference.
1: And on the Patriots' side, it's easy to go Tom Brady, but I'm going to say Rob Gronkowski. I think his presence, at the very least, will cause issues and possibly open things up for your Amendola's, your James Whites of the world to get involved.
0: You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast.
1: We need to get ready for our picks right now. This is kind of sad. This is the final picks we are making this whole NFL season. It's over. This is it. Yep. That's what happens, right? And who's
2: in the top spot?
1: You. At the end of it all. Why is that? You, you said something earlier this week about why...
2: Uh, I said because I always pick the Eagles. So... That's, I mean, that is actually the reason why in the playoffs I differed. Like, we were all basically the same going into the playoffs. I picked the Eagles every week, and you and Jake did not. You picked against the Eagles every time, and this is where we are. And then I also, I think I just had one or two picks different than Ahmed, because he also picks the Eagles every time. Um, But Ahmed missed a week, so his numbers are all off. And there's, you know, conspiracies, asterisks from earlier this season because he sent
1: his picks in late.
2: But, you know... I'll take I'll take an asterisk next to my win. It's fine.
1: But you wouldn't get you wouldn't have one.
2: Well just Ahmed would might contest if, if he had the same number of games mm-hmm. he could have caught me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So you're in first. I got the win. He's Sorry. in second. It's over at this point. Yeah, you can't come back. I'm in now. third Jake's in
2: fourth. if you want to take the Eagles now it's too late, guys. It's too late.
1: I don't know if this is a good percentage. We're all between fifty seven and sixty two percent. That's that's above average. It sounds, yeah. sounds pretty good, I but like I, feel like like I, be be I feel like we feel should like be better. I feel like we should be better. For
2: experts, we should get it right. All yeah. the
1: time. Who does Jake and Amid pick in the Super Bowl?
2: Amid's got the Eagles, sticking with the Eagles, and Jake has the Patriots.
1: Not really any surprise there. No. That that's been the, that's been the trajectory that they've gone the whole yes playoffs,
2: the entire season, the entire think, season. I'm too. pretty sure no one in this show has picked against the Patriots once, and it's hard to. Ahmed and I have yet to pick against the Eagles, so I be- imagine you are going to pick the Patriots.
1: Well, I'll let you go first. Who do you I'm gonna pick? The Eagles. You are going to pick the Eagles. I am
2: I'm roll- I've been rolling with the Eagles ab- this whole time. How about
1: a score prediction too?
2: Okay, I was very, very off of my score prediction of the NFC Championship game. I think I said seventeen to thirteen, and it was thirty-eight to seven. I will go with. 24 to 21, the score of the 2004 Super Bowl, but this time in the Eagles' favor.
1: 24 to 21, you have.
2: Yeah. I think in the 20s, that's the range I'm going with. Uh Three or four scores for the winning team.
1: I'm going to go. Let me think about this. I'll go. Of course, I'm going to pick the Patriots. I'm going to pick the Patriots, and I think it's going to be 27 to 23. I'll give them. I'll give them. I'll give the Patriots. Three touchdowns, two field goals, and I'll give the Eagles two touchdowns and three field goals. I think field goals are going to be a critical factor in this game down the stretch. They have to be, right?
2: Yeah. I think I think they could be. I mean, I said that in the championship game, too, against the Vikings, and it turned out not to be. But this game, it could be a blowout in the Patriots' direction. I don't think it will be a blowout in the Eagles' direction. But I truly believe, like, the 80% chance Lightly is that this is a one score game. I, I do think that this game's going to be close.
1: Now, here's my question as we get ready to finish it out on the show What will happen in not only here at the campus of the University of Delaware, but uh, in the city of Philadelphia if the Eagles win? Mayhem. What does that mean? That's, that's I mean, very generic.
2: At, it can't put it into words. I, mean, I was I went to the, the parade when the Phillies won the championship in 2008. And, you know, I was in sixth grade, so I'm definitely not as, um, you know, I was a huge sports fan and still am. But, you know, you're older and more mature and smarter and everything by the time you're in college, hopefully. Um, And that was just pure, like, excitement, jubilation all throughout the city. Everybody was so happy that day. And I think as – great as that was, I think that the city will take it to another level if the Eagles win because they have yet to win. It's been so long. It's been so many different fan bases telling the Eagles about how few rings they have that when if the Eagles win, it, it will just be craziness, mayhem. I don't know how to explain it.
0: You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. The
2: next question then is what happens to Kirk Cousins? There are a lot of teams that need quarterback, but I also feel like a lot of these quarterback Situations are pretty murky, that they could go a lot of different ways. There are teams like the Redskins that could go young or they could go with the proven guy. Can you pigeonhole a spot for Kirk Cousins? And if so, where would that be?
1: Probably Cleveland or Denver are two top spots, but I would not be shocked if the Vikings make a run. And the reason is because I was reading this article the other day and a lot of it has to do with this Cousins deal, and how some of the other quarterbacks who are going to get long-term contracts in a few years, Matt Ryan, Aaron Rodgers, they have another year. I think Ryan has one more. Rodgers has two. I wouldn't be surprised if those teams start to try to sign those players because when Cousins gets signed, whether he deserves it or not... He's going to be the highest-paid player he's in the NFL. He's <laughs> going to be the highest-paid player because... This rarely happens. Where well, you'll find a very good, not elite, but a, a very good player mm-hmm. like this, just available for yeah, you somebody don't have to give up anything. Yeah, for them. it's very rare. So I wouldn't be shocked if the Vikings go for it, but I also wouldn't be surprised if they try to go with Bridgewater or maybe Keenum for a year, yeah, and and wheel around. But it looked like Denver was a good destination, but their defense fell apart a little bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, how long are we going to? That's my question with Denver: is how long are we going to pretend like this team's a quarterback away? Every year that they don't capitalize mm-hmm. on what they have, they're getting older and therefore going downhill. You know, At some point, they're going to be too far away, removed from that Super Bowl-winning defense to say that they're a Kirk Cousins away. Yeah. I don't know if they are or not. Maybe this is the last year to try, but if they don't get Cousins now, then you have to think about what happens to Demarius Thomas and to Sanders, and does this team have to wipe the board clean before they can make the next move? I think Minnesota's interesting. I think it's maybe a long shot because... They had so much success with Keenum and inside the building. It seems like they really liked Teddy Bridgewater. But I think that puts them as one of the NFC's best teams. It's an upgrade over what they had this year to have Kirk Cousins and, and a healthy Dalvin Cook behind him. That all of a sudden is now really, really good offense to go with what was a really, really good defense. I also think that Cleveland, which was the other team that you mentioned, is interesting. But somehow, some way, I mean, either. 'Cause if he's gonna go to die there and they're not gonna put any talent around him and we're not gonna hear from him again, or they're gonna draft a young guy in the number one or number four overall. And I mean, you gotta think that, that whoever that guy is, no matter how talented he is, is not gonna be put in a situation to
1: succeed. I, I feel like the Browns somehow, some way are gonna end up drafting another quarterback. Also, don't roll the Jets out. That yeah, you got the yeah. Jets too. I think
2: they'll go I think they'll draft someone.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. They're at six. They're high maybe they, to maybe do they it. move up or they stay there.
1: I think that they're going to draft yeah. someone.
0: You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast.
1: Also, I should mention we have gotten right back in action with some of our other projects. I was uh, just
2: yeah. Before you get into that, I was just thinking how this kind of reminds me of the Delaware football roundup from uh, this past fall.
1: Yeah, well, she only only for a week until they get back get back on here. I think we've got another game in a couple weeks when. Maybe Jake will go to an away game when he's going to call a 7 p.m. Thursday game, but it's a different vibe when you only got a couple people on here. But Jake and Amid did the did their first podcast uncaged on Tuesday. That is now available on our website sites.udel.edu slash the cage and on Twitter at WVUD Sports and our new video series One and One, which has received pretty good following and reception so far. It is a very short, easy-to-digest segment, about 90 seconds, with what you need to know from the week of Delaware men's and women's basketball. This week, we got to shoot it down in the scrounge, play a little (laughs) pool. Really cool. They renovated that place. It's cool. So we're just getting started with these new projects here in the spring.
2: Yeah, best 90 seconds of your day or your money back, as we say online. Uh, So go check that out, Twitter, Facebook, or our website, sitesudeledu slash thecagewvud, and hopefully we'll be able to keep it up. We do also take class, so if we don't keep it up, you know, don't don't hold it against us. We're also trying to get good grades, but our goal is to have a one-in-one each week as well as an uncaged throughout the semester.
1: We will preview Delaware men's basketball later on in the show. We will talk women's basketball, some interesting note: Tina Martin made her return to the Bob on Sunday, and the Blue Hens destroyed her, and we have an interesting soundbite that we'll play when a player was asked post-game about Tina That's a little bit later on in the show. Let's go to the NBA right now. It is not yet the trade deadline. The trade deadline is a week from today. So I can only imagine what we might be talking about at this time next week when the Super Bowl's done, recapping that, and really moving on to where we'll go in the NBA season. But before the trade deadline, a big move, Blake Griffin to Detroit. And the Clippers, which once looked like a powerhouse that might be able to make it to the finals Out of Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, it is now only DeAndre Jordan. A very big change as Griffin goes to Detroit.
2: Yeah, and this came out of left field, as you might say in baseball. This came from nowhere. This trade news on, I guess it was Monday evening, that it was announced and Griffin will play his first game, I believe, tomorrow night against the Clippers, which you can't plan those types of things. But the Pistons play the Clippers on Friday in a TNT prime time. And I believe that will be his first game with Detroit. But this this came out of nowhere. The Clippers were rumored to be talking to teams about DeAndre Jordan and Lou Williams, who, you know, are both the other two major contributing players on their team right now. Uh, but Blake Griffin is is that centerpiece guy that they committed to this summer. They gave him a five year, hundred seventy seven million dollar contract this summer to keep him. They decided to let Chris Paul leave, but they kept Griffin with that big money. He took a few other meetings, took a meeting with Phoenix to work the leverage a little bit with LA. So it's it's definitely surprising, as he said, that he got traded at this point in the season and with where this team is at. It, it seems to me like by trading Blake Griffin, the Clippers are signaling a full rebuild. I think he's the one guy on that team that if you wanted to maybe just quote unquote retool, if you wanted to strip down the veterans and bring in a few new pieces, he would be the guy you kept to build around but he's gone. So I think it's a full head-to-toe start over with L.A., a team that had a lot of talent but never really reached the precipice of the NBA. And after getting, you know, going through so much of their franchise history as a joke of the NBA, they finally became relevant with Paul and Griffin. And it's scary to think that, as for a Clippers fan, they could be heading to irrelevance for a pretty long time until they can build this thing back up.
1: Yeah, I agree with that analysis. They, As I mentioned before, they have been in contention it's every year, but they've never gotten over the hump. They get bring Doc Rivers in, and, and it doesn't change. So Griffin goes to Detroit, and the Pistons, they made the playoffs in 2015 as the eighth seed. They lost in the first round to the Cavs. They were swept. But before that season, they hadn't miss, made the playoffs since 2008. And this team right now, very much in the thick of things. They're a game and a half out of eighth. Is this anything beyond signaling, hey, we think we can compete in this conference?
2: That's exactly what it is. It's signaling we want to make sure we're in the playoffs. We're going to build a contending team for this year. You now have two all-star caliber players in Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin on the front line, similar to what the Clippers had, probably better than what the Clippers had on their front line. Reggie Jackson's hurt, but he'll come back and be your point guard. They're a little bit thin on the wings because as part of this trade, as you mentioned, they had to give up... Tobias Harris and Avery Bradley, who are two big rotation players for them. But this is a big pull to get that talent, not only for this season, where I think they're signaling we're better, we're going to be a five or six seed, we're going to go make the playoffs, and we're going to give some of those higher seeds some problems, but also for the future. Now you have two guys that you can use to entice big free agents to come to your team. A new arena opened this year for Detroit. They got Griffin and Drummond to try to pull in another all-star, another all-star caliber player, probably a wing alongside them. I really like this move for Detroit. They did have to give up some quality players in Harris and Bradley, plus their first-round pick, but I think it's worth it. They got clearly the best player in this deal.
1: Tobias Harris had been averaging just over 18 points a game. Bradley had been averaging 15 points a game. They're two leading scorers. Bradley is known as a very good defender, but... You give some to get more. And that's the situation of what they've done here. So the Pistons trying to get into playoff contention. A lot of injuries this week. A lot of bad injuries. John Wall out two months with further knee issues. Kevin Love out six to eight weeks. And Demarcus Cousins tearing the Achilles. That was a dreadful sight after somebody who and a team that's been very much competitive. Can we tie the injuries in with the how the way the teams are playing right now for a second? Who do you think, out of these three injuries, based on where the teams stand or the player's status contract-wise, how good they've been playing, their year, etc., which of these is the worst, hurts the most?
2: The most significant is by far DeMarcus Cousins for the two reasons. For for one, New Orleans, I think, was finally figuring out the best way to use both Cousins and Davis in their front court. They climbed up to number seven in the standings, but they were just a game and a half two games and a half, excuse me, right now, out of fifth, and even just a half game more to get to fourth to host a playoff game. Not saying they would have gotten there, but that's the way that they were trending, seven and three in their last ten games, but a two-game losing streak since that Cousins injury. Even if they had to face a Golden State or a Houston in the first round, I think they're a very interesting matchup with those two big guys because it's completely counter to what both of those teams do. Those teams want to space you out and shoot a whole bunch of threes, And the Pelicans could use those two big guys to bruise them, But they're also athletic enough to hang with some of those quick guys around the perimeter. It's a huge loss for New Orleans this season. But then also for DeMarcus Cousins, it's a huge loss for him. He was going to be a free agent at the end of the season. Now there's going to be question marks around him as far as will he ever return to the same all-pro level that he had been playing at, especially this season, which was maybe his best season of his career. His three-point shot was at its best, averaging over 25 points a game, averaging a double-double, you name it. His impressive numbers have always been there, but were even better this year on a winning team. He was going to get a max contract from somebody, probably the Pelicans. He won't get that now. He'll have to build his free agent value back up, probably on a short-term deal once he comes back from this injury. But he could also miss the beginning of next season, too, with where this happened. So it's a huge loss for Cousins individually and for the team.
1: Those are the worst when you're heading into a a, contra- a year on your contract or a situation in which the injury is going to very well determine what happens for your foreseeable future or how you recover from it. Absolute dreadful injury for him.
0: You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast.
1: We'll hop to the woman's side they got back on track with a win, a very much needed win, at home on Sunday over UNC Wilmington. Delaware had lost two games in a row on the road. They had won their first road game in a three-game road trip, and that began with the win against the Seahawks, UNC Wilmington. And they lost to Elon Northeastern, a win against the Seahawks. And Delaware now sits at 13-7 and on the season, UNC Wilmington is a team that is not very good this season, but they have... Uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. 0-9 oh
2: in CAA play. Oh and,
1: they've lost nine in a row, all of their nine conference games. But they are led by a slew of first-year coaches. First-year head coach, Karen Martin, Karen Barefoot. Karen Martin. Getting <laughs> kind of ahead of yourself. Karen Barefoot. And assistant coach and former Delaware head coach, Tina Martin, who... Was a Blue Hens coach for 21 seasons, all-time leader in wins. I was there on Sunday. You were producing the game. We were talking about it. And it was kind of funny because she was standing around talking to people. A very still look on her face, almost as if, I have to say hi to these people, but I don't really want to be back. And they got blown out. But she was back. And after the game, I sat down with Rebecca Lawrence, sophomore forward for the Blue Hens, And said, hey, Rebecca, have any conversation with Tina Martin? Here's what she had to say. Rebecca, you went up against your former head coach today, of course, with assistant now with the Seahawks, Tina Martin. Did you have any type of conversation with her either before or after the game? I did not. That would have been really awkward if I left it right there and said, oh, that's the end of the interview. So I had to throw another one in. (laughs) But when I asked her that question, the look on her face screamed, don't you dare ask me about that again. Don't you dare ask me about that again. And that's pretty telling, right? Your coach that you would like to think a coach player relationship is good. We know it's not good with this team. Tina comes back and the play, and unless she's lying, yeah, which well, I we, doubt we should, it. I doubt it. We should it.
2: say it was not good with this team. It was not good. We know it was not good last season with this young core of players. Not to specifically pinpoint Rebecca Lawrence because it was not just her. It was, you know, this this younger group of players did not respond well with the coach. They brought those concerns to athletic director Chrissy Raywalk, according to reporting from the News Journal, and Raywalk eventually acted accordingly to the players' concerns and brought in who Natasha Adair, who seems to be, you know, I think this is a little cliche, but I think it's true. I think she's a player's coach, quote-unquote. Right? You see the energy she brings on the sidelines. She seems much more encouraging. She's not the hard-lined, um, intense coach that Tina Martin is, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just different from what Natasha Adair brings, which is a lot of energy, excitement, encouragement of her players. It's two different ways to try to get the same result. And it might be that this current group of players responds better to Adair's style than they did to Tina Martin's style. And perhaps maybe Tina Martin's style is a little bit dated um not to say that she can't be successful we'll see what happens with the Seahawks it's not her program right so it's not necessarily her way of playing or her coaching style that's being shown on the floor she's only helping first time head coach karen barefoot along but that was interesting to me you would think if again this is this is just you know conjecture you would think if if the relationship was solid you know, you would at least, you know, say, Hey hey coach, right? You see somebody that you know and you haven't seen in a while. You would say something. But, you know, it's a game time. They're both locked in on their respective sides, and one team got it done in the Blue Hens and one team in UNCW did not.
1: And it wasn't surprising to me that she said that. No. And I wouldn't surprising. expect
2: I wouldn't expect Lawrence to go out of her way to be like, Oh maybe maybe make sure And I'm talking to Tina Martin like she's got Lawrence's job is to go out there, get warmed up for the game and play a basketball game. And she played her best career game, which we'll get to in a second, with 10 points, which was a career high in the Blue Hens win.
1: Yeah. So they destroyed her. Tina and And not
2: and not to bash Tina Martin, either. She had a long career here, 21 years, 409 career victories. You can't coach one place forever. Right. It was not going to she was not going to be here until she rested on her deathbed. Something was going to happen to where she would not be the Blue Hens head coach anymore. And it just so happened that it happened last year with a new athletic director who has shaken things up across the entire athletic department.
1: You mentioned Lawrence. She had 10 points in the game, career high for her. Abby Gonzalez had 15, Simone Defries had 17, and Nicole Nabosi 21 points and 16 rebounds, yet another double-double for her. They got back on track with a win that they needed to have, and when you look at the CAA right now, they are in the thick of things. There are two teams that sit better than them in the conference. JMU number 1, Drexel number 2. But it's probably time that we can start get into a conversation here with the limited time we have today, but in the next couple of weeks, what is the expectations for this team in the CAA tournament? Because what we talked about the other day off air is that this team has not been this good in the regular season in each of the last couple of seasons. So they've got a shot to possibly do a little bit more damage as they go down the stretch. But their next couple games are going to be very telling. They've got Northeastern on Sunday, William & Mary. These are teams that are in the middle of the conference that, if they're legit, they're going to have to beat them.
2: Yeah, and Northeastern just kicked the Blue Hens' butt last Friday, too. That was not pretty. The Huskies were by far the better team on the floor. Delaware was sloppy offensively. Northeastern only played six players, but they were all very, very good, including Jess Janko, who impressed me. As their point guard leading point scorer, seven assist. Just because Delaware is third doesn't mean that there aren't teams approaching them that will pass them and that Delaware could, you know, they could feasibly finish as low as sixth or seventh in the CAA. It's not over yet. But it is probably to the point where at six and three to open CAA play with only one CAA loss at home, two on the road, it is probably to the point where you say the Blue Hens should be expected to hold ground at third, right? They should probably stay right there. They're two games behind Drexel. Maybe you drop a road game to a Northeastern, a good team. But when you're at home, you handle your business. Maybe you split your road games and you go into the CAA tournament as not the favorite, but a team that gets that first round by and then can mix it up in the second and third rounds.
1: And, they got, and then they got four consecutive home games after Northeastern North on Sunday.
2: Right. So if they go, if they go four and one. In these next few games, that would put them at ten and four in CAA play with just a few games to go. That would be a pretty darn good turnaround. Not to say this team was bad last year, but it would be a pretty strong turnaround from last year to this year.
1: And the, the tricky thing is that they're still going to play Drexel and JMU, two teams above them. That Drexel they lost to earlier. They didn't. Play, they haven't played JMU yet. Yeah. So hey. Gives you some some tests. I mean, that's good, right? You want to play the best teams toward the end of the season mm-hmm. when you're fighting for the playoffs, essentially, the the, cha- the tournament. And it you know? really
2: helps you when you get to the tournament if you played those teams close to the tournament because you're seeing what you're going to see in the tournament if you play them the week or two before. They can't change a whole lot in two weeks. But teams can change a lot from January 1st to March 3rd, whether it be injuries, players that were not in the lineup that first game that are you know maybe coming back or vice versa just a new style new looks offensively if they if they get good looks find out what works against Drexel and JMU toward the end of the season you would think that they could carry that into the tournament and they might get some different looks from those teams but they're not going to be drastically different teams come tournament time and i think that should play to Delaware's advantage
0: you're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast.
1: And this scandal that has evolved, that is the correct word to use here, because initially this was something that involved the former doctor of Michigan State, Larry Nasser, who, of course, then went on to become the USA Gymnastics doctor prior to this entire story about the sexual assault, sexual abuses coming out. As a number of those girls testified at the hearing early last week, he's been sentenced. He probably will never come out of jail again. But now it stretches back to Michigan State and a report from The Athletic. This is, I think, how it kind of all got rolling and a report from the. I'm going to I'm I'm going to hold
2: you there. The first initial report on Michigan State related sexual assault mishandlings came from outside the lines. They first looked into this in 2014, where they were doing kind of a investigation across multiple universities to see if there was a trend in the way that sexual assault cases pertaining to student athletes were handled. So they requested records from a number of different universities across the country. And Michigan State was one of the most reluctant to offer up those records. So they kind of kept that in the back of their mind. And as these investigative reporters for Outside the Lines began working on other projects, ESPN, and, who owns Outside the Lines, and Michigan State were held up in litigation for years and years over these records being, uh, you know, they were redacted when ESPN got them. ESPN needed the names. Eventually they got them, but it carried on for three years, so 2014 to 2016, before Outside the Lines really had this information. And within that time period, all this Larry Nazar stuff is coming to the surface. Other media outlets get a handle on it. The Athletic was one of the many outlets to start kind of focusing in more on what's going to happen with Michigan State outside of just the Larry Nassar situation. Uh, But there's a lot in that outside the lines report, which came out a week ago today. But based on that, you know, those years of digging from 2014 up until now. The
1: initial call was for their president of the university to resign, and she did. And soon after, the athletic director resigned. And then there's pressure on Tom Izzo, basketball coach, and Mike Dan- Mark D'Antonio, to, the football coach, to either resign or say something. And both of them adamantly were saying in their press conferences, hey, we're going to cooperate with all of this. But Tom Izzo got grilled by a reporter in one press conference, and he just said, I'm going to cooperate. I'm going to cooperate. And then, thanks for clarifying all of that, the athletic report was that NCAA president Mark Emmert was initially notified of these reports – Only a few months after he began his job as NCAA president in 2010, which now puts an incredible amount of pressure on him and the NCAA. So this really exploded over the last week.
2: Yeah, the NCAA only started their investigation into the Larry Nazar case last Tuesday, the day before the ruling. And as you mentioned, Emmert himself had knowledge of sexual assault allegations at Michigan State well before that. There are many, many people that these gymnasts have gone to that other victims of, you know, we'll talk about the football players, the basketball players that are have come up in these cases. There are many people that the gymnasts and the victims of these other cases have gone to over the years that have done nothing but squash and quell these stories from getting out. And now they're all thundering down the hill, and there are a lot of different big names involved in it that have been covering it up for a very
1: long time. The only thing that the NCAA has as precedent for this style situation, and of course there are a lot of differences, but the only thing that's even similar remotely is Penn State. And we saw what that investigation led to and the incredible response mainly negative, but also positive from the community and supporting their school and what led to that. So there's going to be a lot of decisions that need to be made. Obviously, this is an ongoing investigation, but initially, Michigan State's in bad shape.
0: Yeah,
2: and there are kind of two competing things going on here, right? You have Larry Nasser, a university employee, molesting athletes that come to him, which in itself is grotesque. And then you have the separate... Similar issue, right? Similar, I guess, in how you should handle it in being transparent. And um, I think that the sympathy first goes to the victim, not necessarily toward the perpetrator, as it seems to have gone in many of these cases. But so you have Nazar on one hand, the, the employee to student, and then you have student athlete to fellow student. And that's what comes up in a lot of these different cases with the football and basketball teams at Michigan State. And there are some pretty detailed accounts in the outside the lines report about the way that you know. There, for just for example, there was an assistant coach at the Michigan State basketball team under Tom Izzo that was a former player turned assistant coach, and during his time as assistant coach, he got into well, not a fight. He he punched a girl in a bar and knocked her off a bar stool, gave her a concussion and a head injury, and throughout the criminal investigation into that the coach remained on staff and continued coaching throughout the final four. And there are multiple examples of similar situations like that. And also from players, Adrian Payne, Keith Appling, that are the most notable case, which came out in June of, I believe this past year, June 2017, um, those two players sexually assaulting a female in a dorm room the first weekend of their freshman year. And both of those two players continued on and played throughout the entire season. Um so I mean those that's those that's what's going on.
1: I know it can be difficult to comprehend that as you mentioned we're dealing with some kind of totally different things and the fact that
2: they're different but they're it, similar. It's they're different. It's it's different. Well, it's different it's,
1: it's different in the sense that the Nasser case it's not completely finished but that has happened. He's going to jail for a very long time whoever enabled that has resigned at least a few of them have, but there's further questions there. But then this other case, you have to think that these other sexual assaults with among student athletes, that the fact that this Nassau story came out has led to further of these stories come out come, coming out, even yeah. even though, as you mentioned, outside the lines had been looking yeah, so into it for I, a little while. I
2: listened to an interview with Paula Laverne, who's one of the investigative reporters at Outside the Lines. And she said that they had this story, they were working on it, and then the Nazar stuff really started taking hold in the national light, and they pushed. They pushed, pushed, pushed to get their story out as quick as they could because they knew that with how quick a news cycle we have, Larry Nazar, that story himself, that one guy, could be in and out of the national spotlight in a week. But if it can be more than just that one person, they can really put a light on this larger issue. So they pushed out... This story that you know had been in development for years and years and years, but they really hustled to get it out right on the tail end of Larry Nassar. So some people would say they're piling on, um, but I would say you know that's their peg, right, to get the story out. In that this is a big national topic, and if you wait a couple of months, it might not get the same reach that it would right now, where the nation I think has taken a hold of what happened with Larry Nassar, but might think, well, that guy is just terrible. To maybe thinking, okay, this is a systemic problem. That needs to be addressed not only in collegiate athletics, but in professional athletics, too.
1: And if it needs to be addressed specifically at Michigan State, yeah. but, but if it needs to be addressed there, but...
2: There's the- probably things that every other university could do, too, to, to make sure that this never happens to them. Like In the story, they talk a lot about how, with the policies at some of these schools, players and people are supposed to go to the university personnel. But inherently, a coach, an athletic director, they have an obligation to protect the image of their team. They have a competing interest in what is the public perception of their team alongside the interest of doing the right thing for the victim or for the person who is accused in these cases. If you can get that to someone who doesn't have a stake in the team, you can probably get a more rightful and fair treatment of these cases when they crop up within the college
1: setting, within the collegiate sports setting. And a part of it that really stands out to me is the fact that apparently the NCAA president knew about this.
2: Right, and that's another that's, thing. That's, that, 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 that
1: stretches. Well, it's beyond, oh, you know, the, the university personnel just didn't listen or they just didn't report it. If they did report it and the person who you are supposed to be reporting it to is doing nothing about it, that's an incredibly large problem.
2: It, it goes along with you going to a coach or an athletic director. It's just a level higher in that.
1: But the peak they, of college, yeah, college but like athletics.
2: Mark Emmert, you would think he wants to do what's in the best interest of the student athlete. That's what they say. That's what they present. But that's not the case. He needs. He does what's in the best interest of the image of the NCAA business. And until those people can be removed from these cases, the athletic directors, the coaches, the head of the NCAA, other university officials, It's it would seem to me that they're going to be people who put the value of their program or of their school or of their federation ahead of the rightful treatment of victims or even you know fair hearings for those who are being accused of these acts that we